Hi, I'm Trisha Johnson, the host of Aspen Ideas To Go. Each week, you hear compelling talks from the Aspen Institute stage. Today, our speakers have stepped off stage for an intimate conversation. Public radio host Joshua Johnson leads our offstage series on spirituality. Here's his first interview. It's the Aspen Ideas To Go offstage series. I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A from WAMU and NPR. Today, spirituality. Can faith help unite us in divided times? Can belief play a role in national healing? And how are religious leaders navigating divisions inside and outside their places of worship? The Aspen Ideas To Go Offstage series goes into the issues that impact all of us. These conversations feature presenters at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Adam Hamilton ministers to about 20,000 Methodists in and around Kansas City. He says he's determined to mend the deep divisions he sees in his congregation, and he joins us now. Reverend Hamilton, welcome. Joshua, it's great to be with you today. Thank you. Describe your congregation, the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. Uh, Tell us about your congregation. Sure. Well, Leewood is a suburb of Kansas City. We've got four campuses throughout Kansas City, so downtown Kansas City, Missouri, Blue Springs, Missouri, and a couple on the Kansas side. And it's a very diverse congregation. It's uh, highly educated, largely. We did a poll not long ago. We found out that 49.25% of our people are Republicans, and 50.75% of our people are divided between independents and Democrats. The Republicans are divided between conservatives and, you know, conservatives on social issues and those who are moderate to progressive on social issues, but conservative fiscally. The Democrats are largely moderate to uh, progressive, and the independents are divided between Republican-leaning independents and Democratic leading independence. So we are, we're a pretty divided congregation, and I think we represent the country you know, fairly well. You're kind of divided within divisions in the congregation. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so it's an interesting thing when you come, you know, you have to, as a religious leader, speak about the issues that are happening in the world. You know, I, I constantly have, not constantly, but I regularly get emails from folks saying, well, uh, you know, you're being too political. I wish you wouldn't talk about politics. And, and I have to say, okay, wait a minute. I'm not standing endorsing candidates. I'm not even talking about the candidates. But what you're calling politics, I'm calling ethics and morals and values. When we're talking about um, justice issues, when we're talking about you know people who are being hurt, we're talking about moral issues. We're talking about and and so if you think about what forms your politics, what is it? Is it just thirty second sound bites on you know in radio spots or TV spots for a campaign, or is it a deeper sense of spirituality and a deeper sense of the meaning of life and why we're here and and surely and you know, I pray that when you're doing your politics, you're doing that through the lens of a deeper moral system and a value system. How much do you as a, as a pastor, as a minister, lean into the political debates and a religious lens on them as opposed to trying to have times where you maybe lean away from them? Like I imagine there are some weeks where you think, let's just do a sermon on, you know, tithing, or let's right. just do a sermon on <laughs> exactly. the story of the Garden of E, anything but politics. Yeah. So here's, uh, so for the folks who are upset by it, they feel like I'm doing it all the time. But here's the way I try to look at it is, um, if I were, if I were reacting to the news stories every week, and in particular in the, in the Trump era, there's always some, you know, big thing that's happened in the last week. I would be rewriting my sermon every, every Saturday based on what happened in the news that week. And then probably Sunday morning, too. And, and again, probably Sunday morning. And so what I've said is, that's not how I'm going to do this. I outline my sermons a year in advance. You know, actually, I have ideas for two years in advance. And yet, somewhere in the midst of those, as I'm preaching on these themes, the things that are happening in the news are going to come into play. But my aim isn't that, I mean, I, I think 
people are hearing so much news all the time and so much political rhetoric and so much divisiveness that when they come to church, I'm not sure they always need one more you know, round of what they're already getting every day. So what I'm trying to do is is carefully choosing where when are the moments when I need to say something. This is this has to you know something has to be said. When there's a school shooting, and even then there's so many school shootings. I'd be preaching about school shootings to you know or violence in in our society. So I I say we're going to talk about that a couple times this year, but I'm not going to talk about it every Sunday. We're going to talk about immigration, but I'm not going to talk about it every Sunday. It's you know so I've had two or three sermons in the last year. So so when it comes to thinking about how I'm going to incorporate what's going on in the world, you know national news and the world news uh, in my sermons, I've got a sermon plan that goes out a year or two in advance. But I find that consistently there are moments, you know, in, in sermons where it's like, okay, this really does fit and we need to address this here. And occasionally I'll say, okay, this is so important. We have to stop the plan that we have. You know, we might be in a series of sermons and we're going to focus on this. I try to build into the into the year at least one sermon series that's going to be focused on Christian ethics the entire series. We're going to look at what are the issues that we're, that are dividing us or what are the issues we're facing in our society. And then we're going to take a look and see how, you know, for it to be a sermon and not just a, an ethical le- you know, lecture on ethics, we're going to look to see how does scripture speak into this? How does our faith shape our response to these things? And what I try to do, the approach I try to take is to say, okay, I know we're divided about these things. I'm, I'm going to try to help you see things through the eyes of the other. And so we're going to try to understand what might be the truth in this complex moral issue that this one side has. What is this side bringing to the table as we're having this conversation? And then I'm going to say, now, you know, with all the humility I can muster, you can disagree with me, but this is how I see this issue right now. I could be wrong, but this is how I see this issue right now. Guns is a, is a great example of this. And uh, recently I preached a sermon on gun violence in the schools. I did a sermon on, uh, on gun control and, and gun legislation a year ago. And as I did that, you know, I surveyed the congregation and laid out some basic common sense kind of measures that one could take to um, to address the prevalence of guns and how easy access is to them. And and it was interesting how how many people agreed on both the left and the right on some of these basic things. Now, that sounds like potentially risky ground because that begins to get out of spirituality into actual policy. Yeah, Uh, it does, actually. So so here we're talking about what would what would we as people of faith, how, how might we respond to, you know, the issues of shootings in the schools? So the shootings in the schools is the presenting or just violence in our communities is the presenting issue. Obviously, there's no guns in the Bible, but there are swords and spears. So you've got plenty of, plenty of places where we talk about how do we respond to people who are our enemies. So we've got Jesus saying, love your enemies. We've got Paul talking about, you know, doing good to those that would harm you. You know, you've got a lot of things you could. So, so there's a part of that that's going to be about those basic biblical principles. But then there's going to be another part that's going to say, so are there any solutions? And is there any way that we as people of faith on the left and the right can come together to find some solutions? And in the end, we found that more than two thirds of our people who were gun owners agreed with a certain, you know, we lifted up four or five basic things that people said, yes, that, that makes sense. And in the end, you know, part of what we did is I said, you know, for those of, you know, it's easy sometimes in the, in the world around us to think that those people who are in the NRA are all gun toting nuts. But I, I have friends and people who I love dearly who are in the NRA and they love to hunt and they're not gun toting nuts and they grieve every time there's a shooting in the school. What and does, on the other side, you know, you've got, th- these aren't people who want to take all your guns away. These are people who want to figure out we've got to, we've got to do something. We've got to come together. And so when you can, when you can treat both sides as human beings and then you can help them hear each other, 
it opens the door to finding answers. What does your congregation want from its religious experience at your church? Do they want a place to deal with these social issues? Do they want a refuge from the politics of the day? Do they just want you to stick to the scripture? Or do they want you to be more prophetic on the issues of our times? What is your congregation expressing to you? Yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> All of you. A little <laughs> bit of, of everything. I get emails across the spectrum. I have people who are like, you know, I, it just, it makes me so mad when you talk about what's, you know, what's going on in the news. I don't want to hear about politics when I come to church. And again, politics becomes the catch-all phrase for something you said that I don't agree with. And, uh, but I've got other folks who are like, so immigration on the border, when, uh, when the children were being separated or the news broke about that, you know, I'm hearing this news, I'm out of town. I'm hearing this news throughout the week. I'm studying it. And I'm like, do I talk about that this Sunday or do I spend another week really trying to see how is this going to resolve? Because I have a feeling within a week it's going to be, it will start to be resolved. And sure enough, within a week there was an executive order and it's not all resolved. But, and I had people who were really mad, like, why didn't you, you should have preached on this this weekend. And I had other people who were like, thank you for not preaching on this this weekend. And the next weekend I did, I did, it was Father's Day weekend, I did talk about it. But um, so I, it's all over the map on that. There, but here's we we also surveyed the congregation recently to find out. We were doing a worship survey to find out about music and different things, what they what they wanted. But we asked about the sermons. Which of the sermons are do you find most compelling? And the number one response was when Adam deals with current issues, when he's dealing with what's going on in the world. But for every person who says that, there's somebody else who's saying, "I wish you wouldn't do that," and you just stick to talking about love. <laughs> We're speaking to Adam Hamilton, the founding pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, outside Kansas City. He's the author of more than two dozen books. His latest is called Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. I wonder, Pastor Hamilton, how you see the United Methodist Church more broadly dealing with social issues, dealing with the politics of the day. I don't know if your congregation and the denomination are on the same track in terms of the way to deal with these issues, whether the United Methodist Church more broadly is still kind of figuring it out and, and asking congregations what they want. But how do you see that today? Right. Well, there's 34,000 United Methodist churches in the United States. We have more churches than any other denomination, more churches than there are post offices or McDonald's in our denomination. And so we represent the broad, you know, I mean, you can find very conservative you know, political congregations, you can find very progressive, and most of us are somewhere in between. Methodists occupy that sort of middle ground many times, and we try to hear people on both sides, and then we try to find a solution or an answer that, that draws upon the strengths of both. Not milk toast, not uh, moderate as in, you know, moderating our faith, but instead trying to listen and find, you know, a conjunctive solution, one that brings, th brings people together and tries to find a middle way. So uh, I would say Church of the Resurrection is very Actually, in many ways, we lead many of our other churches in the country. There are about 14,000 churches that use one or more of our resources every year. And so um, so I think we're a leader in that. And we help other pastors be able to think about this because I have 20 hours a week to work on my sermon. Not every pastor has that. And so when we're talking about these things, many other churches, and we've formed small group studies out of what we've done uh, in the church to help other people think about it. So I think the denomination is in much the same place. The, the, uh, we have uh, a group that speaks for us, uh, or at least you know, spend some analyzing social issues, they tend to be a bit more progressive. Um, and you kind of hope for that. They're, you know, you've got people who are pushing the envelope a little bit to ask 
hard questions that many of us might find uncomfortable. And then in the end, we're not bound to agree with what that particular group, our church and society, uh, is, is the organization I'm speaking of. And so conservatives tend not to like them very much, and, and others tend to say, you know, I, I, like me, I tend to say I'm grateful that they're wrestling with these things. I may not always agree with them, but I'm really grateful for their, their work in this. So I think we're, you know, we're, uh, we are having these conversations, they're important conversations. Unfortunately, the thing that we're most divided about right now is the denomination, because we tend to be, we tend to be concerned for justice as a, as a denomination. We are concerned about, I mean, John Wesley, our founder, was anti-slavery in, in areas where it was really hard to be anti-slavery in England, Bristol, England in particular. Uh, you know, he was addressing the social issues of his time. That's part and parcel of being Methodist. But the, um, the issue that we're divided over most right now is not immigration, about which many people would, you know, would find some common ground. It's about uh, human sexuality. And so like many of the mainline churches, we're divided about how we see marriage and whether uh, same-gender marriage is acceptable or not acceptable. And, and those divisions are largely, you know, they're, they're often around both age. And we find the Deep South has one you know, as one way of seeing things in the North and the East and the West, another way of seeing things in the church. And we're on the verge of probably a, at least a minor division over this in our church. Well, you took up the issue of the inclusion of LGBT people in the church as something you wanted to deal with more specifically. Why was that? Yeah. Well, uh, for several reasons. One is I felt like we needed as the largest and sort of the leading church in our denomination to help the rest of the churches at least have the know what the framework is for the conversation. But we also have probably 800 gay and lesbian people or children of our members who are gay and lesbian. And so this is a large swath of our 20,000 people. There's, you know, there's, uh, you know, and, and then when I asked the question one Sunday, how many of you have a friend or a family member or a coworker that you care about who's gay or lesbian? And almost everybody raised their hands. We have to talk about this. And our denominations policy put in place in 1972 is is a pretty harsh policy. And it's it's one that half the denomination in the United States disagrees with. And so... What's um, the policy? Well, it's uh, it says uh, that um, on the positive side, it says, uh, and the word homosexual was what was used in 1972. So homosexual people no less than heterosexual people are people of sacred worth before God. So, okay, we all agree on that. But the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. So that's the phrase... And, uh, and then pastors are not allowed to officiate at same-gender marriages in our pro- on any of our properties, or actually, United Methodist pastors can't officiate anywhere. We cannot officiate. And so, you know, you have communities where you have a significant gay and lesbian presence, and, and you have a church saying, what you do is incompatible with Christian teaching, who, in essence, it sort of goes along with who you are. And we will not be, you know, we cannot be in ministry with you in this way. Now, our churches are generally welcoming. So most of our churches say, we want you, we care about you, but this is our policy. But it doesn't feel very welcoming when you're told that you and your spouse are incompatible with Christian teaching. Well, I wonder how you respond to members of the church who are more conservative, who say, well, wait a minute. Jesus said, I didn't come to make peace. I came with a sword. You know, I came to divide, you know, that, that there are parts of the scripture that are not flexible. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And there are certain parts of the scripture that are welcoming, and there are certain parts of the scripture that are strict on purpose. And there's a point at which we as Christians have to be able to say, look, I love you, but this is what the Bible says, and I can't countervail the word of God. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. But part of what I've tried to teach our people is, uh, is what is the scripture and how was it formed? Because if you, if you say that, so this is what you often hear from people, it's the word of God, and now you're messing with the word of God, you're picking and choosing. And, uh, and, and part of what I'd say is picking and choosing is actually called interpreting. 
And the scriptures need to be interpreted because they were, you know, they are sacred texts, but they were written by human beings. We believe they're inspired by God, but we don't really know exactly how that inspiration worked. They were written by human beings in particular cultures and historical circumstances. So there's 270 plus verses in the Bible that affirm and allow slavery, including beating your slave with rods as long as they don't die within two days because the slave is your property. That's what it says in Exodus. So we look at those passages and go, yeah, no, not that. Uh, that there are other passages that that over you know, overshadow those, but 270 plus of these. There's six passages about gay and lesbian. Actually, six passages about some form of same gender relationship. One of which calls for you to kill gay men. Now, nobody I know is killing gay men or advocating for that, even though that's what the Bible says. And so there's a place for us to go. And there was a, a preacher once. Uh, I was talking about this. Uh, I'd written a book called Making Sense of the Bible, and I was on a national lecture on this. And and he said, you know, you're just picking and choosing. And I said, well, let me just ask you a question. Do you have a pension fund? And Methodist preachers love their pension fund. You know, do you have a pension fund? Well, yeah, of course. I said, let me ask you this: What part of Jesus' words "Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth" did you not understand? Because that's a pretty clear passage, and yet you've somehow managed to say, "No, we need pension funds today," even though Jesus said not to store up treasures on earth. And what you did is you interpreted. So you could say you're picking and choosing, or you could say you're interpreting. How did he, how did he respond? I'm sure he didn't liquidate his pension fund. No, he was uh, just silent. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I like there was- You're a, not telling people not to have a 401k. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm, okay. I'm, saying, I'm saying that we need to be able to take our sacred text, and we need to understand the times in which it was written, and we need to recognize, you know, again, let the women keep silent in the church. Have the women pray with their heads covered. There's a whole lot of these passages where we don't observe those things in the same way today, and we recognize that these words- came within a particular culture and context. So we've got to, inf- so we inform our scripture reading. We interpret the scripture in the light of our experience, in the light of the tradition of the church, and in the light of reason. Those things help us to be able to make sense. And that's how it always worked. So Jesus, when he's talking with the Pharisees, he's saying, you've heard that it was said of old, and he quotes some Old Testament passage, but I say to you. And so even Jesus is, is reinterpreting. And, and throughout the Bible, you find biblical authors are sometimes dialoguing with each other or disagreeing with each other. So the chronicler says, bad things happen to you because you did bad things. And the book of Job follows that and says, wait a minute, Job was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. And all this horrible stuff happened to him. He was just the subject of some cosmic bet. Uh, right, exactly. So in the midst of that, you realize that the biblical authors themselves are are dialoguing with each other and sometimes pushing back. James is pushing back on Paul's, you know, you are saved by grace through faith alone, no works. And James comes back and says, wait a minute, uh, no works play an important part in here somewhere. And so when we th- we say, well, I'm going to take this verse or these six verses scattered throughout the Bible, and I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to determine everything based on that. Sometimes that's right. And sometimes it's not. How do you help your congregation see themselves as children of God first? I think it's very easy today to just see people mm-hmm. as jets and sharks, this kind of political duality, which to me is both boring and dehumanizing. Right. And it just negates the three-dimensionality of of humanity. I wonder how you as a faith leader, especially with a gigantic congregation, help keep people seeing one another in an equivalent way and, and see through and around and past the politics. Yeah, so that is something that we talk about regularly and I try to model for them. The modeling of uh, treating people with dignity and respect and hearing their voices and not that they're all equal voices, but just being able to treat people. So during 2016, I had our our congregation memorize two verses. Uh, Do unto others as you have them do unto you. I I said, I hope you all have this memorized already. But if you don't, we're going to memorize that. And I want you to think about that every time you have a conversation about politics. What does it mean to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you? And then uh, there was a... uh, 
I think I actually had three. I think the second one was love your neighbors, you love yourself. So what does it mean to love your neighbor who's a Democrat or a Republican or somebody across the aisle or somebody who's vote, you know, loves Trump or somebody who hates Trump? How are you going to love them? Because, you know, in the end, God, God doesn't really care so much about what you thought about this or that president, but God cares deeply about whether you love your fellow human beings. And John says, if you can't love your neighbor who you can see, how can you say you love a God you can't see? And, uh, and so we talked about that. And another one was a passage from Paul where he says, let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building others up as there is need that your words might give grace to those who hear. And so it's, and that not only applies to your words out of your mouth, but the ones you type in social media, how are you allowing your words to give grace to others as opposed to dehumanizing them or you know, so if you could apply. Oh, but come on, Pastor. Aren't there some people who we just need to let have? It feels so good to just let those. I mean, really, like we're having yeah. this debate about civility right now. Yeah. And I feel like it just it's too satisfying to take the moral high ground mm-hmm. and say what you know those people, whoever those people are, right. need to hear. And I have the answer and you need to hear it. And this is America and doggone it. It's my turn to talk and I'm tired of biting my tongue. It just yep. feels too satisfying it, to finally let her rip. I think that's exactly right. I think that's what we feel. And that's what we have to guard against. I think it, it naturally, no, there's not, this isn't saying don't share what you think, but sharing what you think in a way that's reflects a humility. Like I could be wrong about this. I don't think so, but I could be wrong about this. And that treats the other as a human being is really important. And most of the time when we send those zingers out, it feels really good. What if I'm quoting the Bible? I know I'm right because it came out of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that goes back to our question about just a second ago about the nuances of the Bible and how we read the Bible. It's not quite as simple that because I can pull out out a verse and I can zing you with a thousand different verses that aren't really in keeping with the spirit of Scripture. But I certainly pulled that one verse out and made it it zing. Uh, Here's the thing especially when it comes to complex arguments, political or moral arguments, is you cannot have a complex argument in 280 characters on Twitter. I mean, thankfully, they doubled the amount of space we have. So we went from 140 to 280. You can't do it. You can't have those kind of arguments in your you know, nifty responses on Facebook to somebody's post. And you also, when it comes to posting on Facebook, to figure out how can I... So here's the thing I, I've challenged people, pastors across the country. We talk about prophetic preaching. And prophetic preaching has to do with saying the hard things, you know, and addressing justice and, and righteousness, all these things. But, but when it comes to prophetic preaching, I ask pastors, you've got to decide, do you want to irritate people or influence them? It, irritating people is easy. It's just not hard to say something that's going to hurt their feelings or irritate them or make them mad. But if you actually want to change somebody's mind or you want to influence their thinking, you got to figure out, how do I do that? So if, you've, if you're on Facebook and you want to influence your family and friends who might have different views, you got to say, how could I do that in a way that my mom, who feels totally opposite of me, might actually go, well, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And that's why, you know, when it comes to preaching on controversial issues, I typically, my approach is to say, here's why thoughtful people on this side see, this, see it this way. Here's why thoughtful people on this side see it this way, both quoting the Bible. Here's where I come out. I appreciate the folks on that side, on this side. I, I find myself more compelled by this, but if you're on the other side, know how much I love you anyway. I mean, I've had people come and go, I came in and I knew you were preaching this and I was going to hate your sermon because I kind of had a feeling where you were going to land. They came in ready to hate it. Oh yeah, yeah. But then the way you approached my side opened my ears and my heart to hear what you had to say. That's got to be hard for you though as a pastor. I know you're yeah. not trying to do harm, yeah. but just personally in your own, and I, I know I got to let you go shortly, but in your own spiritual walk, I wonder how you are dealing with this as someone 
who has a tremendous responsibility over a huge congregation and who knows the obligation on a pastor and who's trying, I'm sure, trying not to hurt anybody and doesn't like being told, I was ready to hate your sermon and right. I can't believe you said that. Before I let you go, Pastor Hamilton, how are you dealing with this? What's your spiritual walk like these days to be prophetic and helpful and resilient in these right. crazy times? I actually feel like that's a uh, that's a part of the calling and how God has wired me. So I've I feel grateful to have a chance to do that. And, and I feel energized by having a congregation that's divided and that I'm trying to help them hear each other and find a, I, I told them in our polarized country, you know, I feel like the church has a role to play in bringing healing to a polarized nation. I mean, we're, we're a place that's our defining value is love. So if we can't figure out how to do this together in our congregation, what hope is there for the world? So I want you to be in a small group or a Bible study or a Sunday school class with people who disagree with you. And I want you to figure out how do you listen to each other and treat each other as brothers and sisters? And how do you come out with a stronger view, a better view, better informed because you've listened to both sides? I mean, seldom are issues that we're really divided about as a country completely black and white. If they were, we wouldn't be divided. Everybody would agree. But instead, there is some truth on both sides there. And so, so anyway, I... When I was younger, so I'm 50, I turned 54 next month. When I was in my 20s and 30s, every one of those letters just felt like an arrow driven into my heart. It was so hard and I'd feel like I'd have to write a five page response to them and I would stew on it for a long time, you know, and I was ready to quit if I got 20 of those, you know, emails in a week. And, and uh, at 53, almost 54, I feel like it's okay. You know, and, and I'm not going to be the right pastor for everybody. I'm going to try to be, the, you know, a great pastor to them and love my people and love God and try to model for them the Christian faith. But there may be people, you know, that are going to leave. And I'm going to say, hey, and often I'll write a note. I don't always get to do this, but like, I want you to know it's been an honor to be your pastor. And I'd welcome you back at any time. I understand, you know, you see this this way. I just want you to know I still love you anyway. And, uh, and if I can do that, the Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. And it's amazing how when we treat somebody with kindness instead of, you know, hitting them back, how often that actually diffuses the situation and causes somebody to be open to hearing what you have to say. So I, but there are still moments where I get discouraged or I'm like, seriously. Um, but it's much easier if you're, if you're pastoring a church of all conservatives and you're conservative, or you're pastoring a church of all progressives and you're progressive, when you're trying to figure out how do we hold the church together, sort of like how we, how do we hold the country together? You know, it's a, it's a challenging, but really important work. And I wish I, I would love to see, a president who was able to do that as well. Somebody who could figure out how can I hold this together? But our political system with the primaries being the most avid voters on either side tend to lead us towards people who can't do that very well. Adam Hamilton is founding pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. His latest book is called Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. Pastor Hamilton, thanks for talking to us. Joshua, thank you. It's been a joy. I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A, a national news program produced by WAMU Public Radio in Washington, distributed by NPR. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow at Aspen Ideas all year round on Twitter and Facebook. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks for listening. Thank you.